This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here, my guest this week in the studio, Matt Flaherty. Matt, thanks for joining us on Big Talk. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited for the conversation. All right, Matt, a candidate for Bloomington City Council. He is a lawyer. He is a student also, an IU student. By the way, the first IU student to run for elective office here in Bloomington since 2011. So there you go, Matt. <laughs> I'll take it. I think that's good. I think we need, uh, I'm maybe not a traditional student. I'm 33 years old, which we'll get into my background a bit and why I'm in school now. But I think it is important to have uh, representation from the student body and, and really just council members who are looking to get student members, uh, students involved in our city government, involved in the issues and engaged in the community. You have also promised to get students involved and faculty as well. We'll get into that. That's part of your platform, which we're going to cover on Big Talk Extra Monday. Matt's running for an at-large seat on the Bloomington City Council. Right now, the at-large members on the council, sitting members, Susan Sandberg, Jim Sims, and Andy Ruff, they're all running again for re-election. There are three challengers, of which you are one. There are also uh, Gene Kapler and Vox Booker, both of whom we've had on this program. It looks like a race. Yeah, I think it's uh, been a really, honestly, engaging campaign so far and a great community conversation. I'm looking forward to the final month uh, here and I guess, five, six weeks, actually. And uh, I think it's been great to run, and, and we've had a good conversation. Do things get crazy, do you think, uh, as we get nearer and nearer uh, the final day, which is the uh, first Tuesday in right. May for that's the right. primary. Yeah, that's right. May 7th is in a, is the uh, vote. And also early voting starts April 9th, so very soon. Yep. Perhaps things will get crazier, though I would uh, say they've been crazy the whole time a bit. So there's you always have, more to do on a campaign. You have never run for public office before. That's correct. Why do you want to get into that madness? <laughs> well, you know, I care a lot about my community. I love Bloomington. I've lived here nine years. Um, and I've been engaged with city issues for quite a while. Uh, so I've advocated on various housing and transportation and sustainability policy issues at the city level um, in my time here and have been getting increasingly involved. Um, I'm back in school, which I know we'll get into to discuss, but I'm, I'm in school changing careers a bit in order to work in the public interest on some of our most challenging problems. I didn't anticipate ever running for office, to be honest, uh, but it seemed like the right thing to do after you know working on some issues last year and seeing that we need to do better. We can keep moving forward uh, in ways that bring everyone in our community along and meet our, you know, commitments on climate change and sustainability for our community. You have an in-law who also is running for office. Yes, that's uh, Kate Rosenberger in District 1. So Kate and I go all the way back to 2007 when we were in law school. Mm -hmm. I guess 2008 is when we met. Uh, so we became friends uh, over shared values uh, of sustainability and just engaging in our community generally, um, as well as both being runners. So I met Kate, yeah, way back uh, over a decade ago now. And then I met my now wife, uh, Beth Rosenberger, through Kate. So I uh, knew Kate first. We were friends. And then Beth and I uh, became friends eventually as well and ultimately started dating in 2013 and tied the knot uh, three weeks ago. Still in the <laughs> honeymoon phase. Yes. Wonderful. And I know Kate speaks highly of you, so there isn't in-law friction going <laughs> on. <laughs> no, although, you know, I'll say we uh, are both 
uh, attorneys by training and, and have our own sets of values. And there's times, of course, when we disagree. And, uh, you know, I don't see that. Uh, I'm sure we will in the future on, on various, you know, advocacy issues or on counsel or whatever. That's. But I like to think that when lawyers argue, <laughs> they argue constructively. I think so. And very civilly. And I would say dispassionately. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I think it's important to be able to have critical conversations about the issues and challenges facing us, but still acknowledge that I think almost everyone engaged in, you know, locally is well-intentioned, has uh, our community's values at, and, and uh, well-being at heart. Uh, so we're going to disagree. We need to have these conversations, but I think we need to be able to make sure that we are all still uh, civil and friendly uh, when we <laughs> stop the argument, you know? So I think that's something that actually, yeah, training as an attorney teaches you to really be able to do. Matt, uh, we were talking about how you got here today for this recording session. You rode your bike. It's a beautiful sunny day. This is a few days before airtime. Riding a bike is important to you. Is important to you as a candidate? Yeah, I think so. And not just uh, you know riding my bike, but also walking and taking the bus. You know, we need to move towards a more sustainable future. And I try to do my part and live my part. Uh, it's important to me that I live near. You know, I live in Bryant Park, so I'm about a mile from downtown. Um, and that's the lifestyle choice I made when I lived in Chicago for three years. I, I didn't own a car at all. Now my family, you know, shares one. Uh, Beth and I recognizing, of course, that everybody has different needs and different choices. Not everyone's going to ride a bike, not everyone's going to walk, and not everyone's going to take transit. But we need to make sure those options are available to folks and that we're encouraging uh, those sustainable ways of getting around and just generally making sure uh, that in the mobility context that people have access to to options, uh, whether or not they can afford a car, uh, and no matter where they live. Now, as you say, you're serious about riding a bike. Would you characterize Bloomington as a bike-friendly city? Uh, Generally speaking, yes, but we can do better. Uh, We've had a goal for about a decade now as a city to become a platinum-certified bike-friendly city through Mm -hmm. the uh, League of American Bicyclists. Uh, That requires 12% commuter ridership share. Ah. We've been stuck at about 4 or 5% for that entire decade-long period. So uh, we sort of have this level that we'd like to get to, but we've kind of been stuck. So I think there are things we need to keep doing. One one big piece, obviously, is the the Beeline Trail has become absolutely a commuting corridor and helped, uh, you know, helped us move in that direction. Uh, neighborhood greenways have a lot, have a big role to play. And then just recently, there was a trees and trails bond approved um, by the city council that will lead to a two-way protected bike lane on 7th Street, uh, I think between Rogers and Woodlawn on campus. So that'll be kind of an east-west corridor, hopefully of nearly as high comfort as the B line and, and some other paths like that. You know, the data and the research shows that a lot of folks would like to be able to ride their bikes, but only a very small subset of people are comfortable sharing the road in, on a busy street. It can be scary. I know that uh, as far back as, I believe it was 1986, uh, I, too, lived mm-hmm. in Chicago at that time. That's my hometown. I was doored, yeah. which is the big panicky fear that any biker experience. Uh, doored being, for those who, who might not know, you're going down the street, you're, you're between the moving traffic on your side of the street and the parked cars to your right. Someone throws their door open right as you're coming up, you hit it. It can be, re- well, it can I had you. to go to surgery. Yeah, I, I, and in fact, I've been doored as well Yeah, uh, in Chicago when I was living there twice. Uh, one was particularly bad. I was flipped in front of a vehicle, landed on my head, right. my bike was totaled. Um, 
I was lucky that I was thrown in front of the parked car and not into traffic. Oh. Because I, I, when I was up there, folks died uh, from being yeah. doored and thrown into moving traffic. And oh. So here's the thing about dooring and when you don't have appropriate bike facilities, cyclists tend to feel nervous in that space and hug the parked cars, which is yeah, about absolutely. the worst thing you can do. And that's what I made that mistake of. Now I make sure that when there's no bike lane, I just take the lane, right. uh, so to speak. They, you ride in the middle of the lane and, and you act just like a car. The problem with that is... Uh, <laughs> There's not a lot of love for cyclists out there, and I think folks get impatient and try to, you know, pass you nearby or honk at you. And sometimes aggressive. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, we have this civil streets campaign kind of idea at the city, uh, trying to make sure that we're all safer and more courteous users. And, you know, if, if you're mad at a cyclist for, you know, being in the middle of the lane, think about, yeah, the risk of dooring. Or if they're on a sidewalk on, let's say, like South Walnut, it's probably because they feel very unsafe in the street. So trying to make sure that we have a safe and sustainable system for everyone. This isn't about cars versus bikes or uh, pedestrians versus cyclists or anything like that. It's about making sure we can all share the space in a, in a civil and sustainable way. Can the city induce people to ride bikes simply uh, through advertising or public service announcements? Or do they have to actually build things like safe bike lanes and then bikers say, hmm, maybe I'll try it? Sure. Yeah, the biggest thing is infrastructure, certainly. You know, this is fairly well researched in from a European context. Obviously, we're not Copenhagen and we're not Amsterdam, but right. currently Copenhagen was not Copenhagen once. In fact, yeah. they had car car ridership just like we did, and they made, you know, intentional choices to get where they are. So we have folks and communities even in the U.S. that are way ahead of us that we can look to. Um, and yeah, I mentioned it earlier, but the fact is that only a very small percentage of riders are comfortable sharing a busy street with cars. It's It's a... You're just not going to attract new users if you don't have high comfort facilities like the B-Line. Um, so to the extent that we can incorporate those into our planning and protected bike lanes is the one other thing we could really use on in areas around campus, say like 3rd Street, uh, where there is a bike lane all the way along the south side of campus. But a lot of times uh, people are just parking in that bike lane to pick up friends. or right. It's a real danger. And the IU police know that. And, and so do the you know folks at the city. Uh, they're working on solutions. I've, I've tried to work on those solutions too and talk to you know the people, <laughs> the powers that be at IU about it. Unfortunately, they're pretty resistant so far to making those changes that would be safer for everyone. But it's something I'll keep working on. Yeah, and we'll see where it goes. Riding a bicycle is a physical exertion. You're big on physical <laughs> exertion. Uh, you haven't got an ounce of fat on you. Uh, <laughs> you're a runner. Yes, uh, yeah, long time runner. Uh, gotten, you know, I ran, I ran like a six minute mile when I was in fourth grade or something like that. And, I rode in a car once uh, <laughs> and I did a mile in six minutes. Go yeah. ahead. From there, the you know the gym teacher who was also the high school cross country coach pulled me aside and was like, "You better run cross country in junior high." And <laughs> that sort of led down this path of yeah, I, I competed um, at the University of Illinois. Uh, in cross country and track and field. That's my um, undergraduate alma mater where I majored in civil and environmental engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, and then continued running, got involved with marathons, and then a bunch, eventually trail marathons and, and longer distance races as well, ultra marathons. By the year 2012, uh, was doing that at a level that I was able to pursue it professionally and chase uh, some dreams. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> professionally, who pays whom to run? Sure. Uh, yeah, folks don't realize maybe that running professionally is a sport. Uh, you can think about the Olympics, for one. So those folks, people are paid to run. Uh, so the top people in the sport, I mean, literally make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And Usain Bolt, for instance, makes, you know, I don't know, millions and millions in endorsements every year. 
The trail running world is a little more fringe, but people are still making a living out of it. Mainly, it's a bunch of folks chasing their dreams. The top people are making several hundred thousand dollars a year competing, representing brands and winning prize money. So those are the two main avenues. I've been running for the company Solomon, which a lot of folks know is a ski company, but they're also a trail running hiking company. I've been running for Solomon since 2000, I guess end of 2011. When um, you say running for Solomon, mm-hmm. what does that mean? They say, here's a paycheck? Yes, correct. Yeah, huh. so they pay me. Uh, I'm a amb- global ambassador for that uh-huh. brand. Uh, they give me gear. I do you know, events, promotional work, get involved in things they want me to get involved with, social media campaigns, all that sort of stuff. And then I compete at a high level at uh, races you know, in the U.S. as well as occasionally internationally. I've actually represented the USA uh, in four world championships now at the 100-kilometer distance. So yeah, uh, just competing at the top levels of the trail and ultra-marathoning world, you can get paid to represent brands and also make money from uh, winning races. I hear talk from you, as a matter of fact, <laughs> Springfield, Illinois. Yeah, that's where I'm from. So born and raised uh, south side of Springfield, actually Chatham, uh, Glenwood High School is where I went to high school. Uh-huh. I mentioned uh, the University of Illinois is my alma mater, so I was kind of Illinois, born and raised, my family. My, my dad comes from a farming family in north central Illinois, and uh, my mom came from Chicago originally. And then I found my way to Bloomington uh, to come to law school here in 2007. Well, if before we get there... When you were a kid, sure. you say your daddy-o came from a farming family. Yep. What was he doing when you were a kid? Oh, sure. He was a business manager at a uh-huh. small doctor's office, and then he eventually became a financial advisor, uh, kind of a career switch. So you weren't uh, living on a farm or no. anything? You were living in a, a, a small urban environment. Yeah, yeah. Chatham, the town we were kind of in, is about 10,000 people, or at least it was when I was there. And we lived... Um, kind of near the woods and yeah I kind of spent my childhood growing up running around the woods. What did your mom do? Uh, She was a social worker Ah. uh, for the school district so public schools uh, social worker on kind of a regional basis. Have you touched Lincoln's nose? (laughs) Yes. Okay (laughs) there's a that famous uh, bust of Abraham Lincoln in Springfield that everybody has to touch his nose and it's it's shiny because of that. Yes that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay so you went to the University of Illinois. That's right. What did you do after graduation? Uh, so I actually came straight to school here. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I was in the civil. I mentioned I majored in civil and environmental engineering, uh, which I really liked aspects of it, but the education really lacked a normative component. And I had a desire to work uh, in something that had more of a an obvious value system and a role to play in, in, in influencing our you know social uh, and built environment. I think I was mistaken. You know, in retrospect, I could have stayed in the engineering field and really had a normative element to what I did if I went into public service or that sort of thing. Uh, but it wasn't emphasized in the education. Uh, so I didn't see that as a path forward at the time. Uh, so I've been kind of a circuitous journey, as, as folks may have gathered uh, already. But I, it's been a really great ride. And, and um, I think the multidisciplinary background I have, I'm actually blending those things now. So I'm drawing on that engineering background as well as, uh, you know, my legal education here at IU and trying to move in, in forward in a public policy space now and really kind of blending those those interests. So you uh, came here to Bloomington in 2007 to go to the Moore School of Law. That's right. You wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, I was interested. I'd had some uh, cousins who had become attorneys and we talked about it a bit. I did know some folks who'd be- uh, who were engineers who became uh, patent attorneys and Basically, when you're a patent attorney, uh, you get to learn about new technology all the time. So you're constantly learning new things. And uh, Sounds I, like fun. Yeah, it does sound like fun. And I, I did, really wanted to keep an open mind when I came here to law school. 
but I did end up getting kind of shuffled into that IP patent world, perhaps out of lacking enough intention to go a different direction. IP being intellectual property. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, intellectual property. I think, again, in retrospect, <laughs> probably should have been studying environmental law, uh, as that's where my you know true passion has sort of proven to be. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and I'm you know happy for the journey I've been on. Uh, it was a really interesting. I, I highly value my legal education. I thought it was. I think it will be valuable no matter what I do. It made me a very critical thinker and a great writer, uh, good at researching. Uh, so it's it's going to pay dividends no matter what I do. And like I said, now I'm heading in kind of a policy, public policy direction, and that will certainly be useful. Well, you graduated from the Moore School in 2010. Then you went up to Chicago to practice law. Who were you with? I was with a company or a yeah, firm called Winston and Strawn. Uh, ah, yeah, of course. <laughs> big Jim Thompson. There you go. Big yeah. Jim worked at the firm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a large firm, and they're headquartered in Chicago. It's one of these things where if you aren't very intentional in your first year of law school about where you're headed, headed it's easy to kind of wind up in the firm, you know, the private practice firm world because they come at the beginning of your second year of law school recruiting ah. and it's sort of flattering all these people want to you know uh, we want pay you, you a lot of money and and yeah. have you do good work and and um yeah if you if you don't want that lifestyle you kind of need to really know it and resist it and i you know at that point i was 22 23 years old i probably let my um values get a little bit too externally defined uh, uh, by other people's visions of success yeah. or prestige. And and that was, you know, in some ways, a, a big learning experience for me. I've, I'm in a very different place now where my value system and, and what I'm trying to do for, for the greater good of our community is now central to all my choices. I learned very quickly in working for a firm that I don't care at all about how much money I make. Mm -hmm. As long as I can meet my basic needs, I'm good to go. So there was no real reason to be there after <laughs> a time because it's a very high stress life. It's it's um, it was an odd time to be a lawyer as well. It was uh, 2010, kind of in the wake of the global recession. So work yeah. was very hit or miss, kind of cutthroat even within my own firm. But the uh, silver lining of all that was I had I was able to put in uh, over 400 hours of pro bono service in my time there. And working. that's expected when you go to a big law firm. That's right. It's expected to put in uh, pro bono service. That's but usually not that much. Probably more like 50 to 100 hours a year. A would, year. Yeah, exactly. So. And what kind of people did you deal with when you were doing your pro bono work? Probably 75% of it was uh, helping victims of domestic violence oh. uh, in securing orders of protection. Uh, so this was a program that the firm had had worked with uh, in Cook County, and uh, that was really rewarding work. And then the other main things I did in, the, in a pro bono context were helping asylum seekers in their appeals. Uh, so if they had a lost lost their initial uh, determination for uh, seeking asylum, we were helping them to appeal that uh, in the immigration courts. You're in Chicago. You're working for this big, high-powered firm. Did you get to a certain point where you said, what am I doing here? Yeah, and I got there pretty quickly. Sometimes I use this example. It wasn't a case I worked on, but it was a case colleagues of mine worked on. It was Monsanto versus DuPont, uh -huh. and they secured a billion-dollar jury verdict after you know six years of litigation uh, or something like this. And company versus company. Yeah. Okay. And it's kind of cynical, but it was easy to get the sense that we were just shifting money between corporate actors, in that particular case anyway, who were not particularly working in the public interest. You know? Yeah. Those are yeah. companies that have don't have great track records of... Uh, in general, uh, with the environment or other things, so y you could, you know, you could kind of make the claim. I worked in a patent context. I worked for uh, some generic side pharmaceuticals companies, that sort of thing. 
Uh, and you could make the argument to yourself, oh, we're trying to, you know, we're, we're increasing access to medicine by getting generics on the market sooner or something like that. You could, yeah. you know, justify it and make yourself feel good. But well, really, lawyers can justify anything <laughs> in a lot of ways. But yeah, I can't say I find found the work particularly satisfying. Uh, uh-huh. The client, you know, at that scale, large firms, the client, all the clients you're working for are large corporations didn't provide much meaning to me at all. By far, the most meaningful work I was doing was in the pro bono context. Uh, and had I not then pursued a very different uh, career next and moved to that professional running, I'm sure I would have moved in directly into the public interest space in the legal field at that point. Then you moved back here to Bloomington. Uh, yes. I was in Chicago for a little while before that transition, but I moved back here in the summer of 2013. Uh-huh. Why? So I had kind of made that leap and, and decide I was my running was going very well. I was still competing, of course. Professionally at uh, that time? It, that's sort of when it became professional. So uh-huh. I was competing. I was getting more involved in the trail running and ultra running world. I had some opportunities for sponsorship with companies. Uh, I knew the uh, I wasn't satisfied in my you know work at the law firm, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a few years, chase my dream, go for it. Uh, so I quit and started you know running full time, and yeah, fairly quickly then moved down to Bloomington. Essentially. Hey, I love it here, and uh, I'm a bloomerang, so I came back. You know, there you uh, go. I love the community. Absolutely, I had a lot of friends still here. Uh, you know, people who lived in town for many years that I'd become friends with in my time here. And then also, it was the great uh, trails and natural areas we have all over uh, Southern Indiana. So Hoosier National Forest and the Dean Wilderness, uh, Brown County State Park, Morgan Monroe. All these places are great training uh, for the type of running I was doing. So it was a, a really good fit for me. Uh, to come back to Bloomington. I would think that you would want a uh, flat terrain to run <laughs> on. You're not getting much of that here. No, in fact, you don't want, uh, at least I don't want flat terrain. A lot of the trail races are, in fact, in the mountains. Uh, yeah. If anything, we have a, a, a lack of enough uh, hills for me. Oh, really? Uh, so, yeah, you get much stronger from training on hills. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I try to get to the trails a lot to uh, do that. I notice you've done a lot of freelance journalism work. Now, how did that come about? You know, I've always been a passionate writer. When I made the leap and started running professionally, it's not like there's a lot of money in the sport. You know, I was making enough to scrape out a living uh, from sponsorship support and from prize money, but I, you know, and I was I had a lot of time on my hands as well. So I started write, writing for uh, industry-leading publications like Running Times and Ultra Running Magazine, Trail Runner Magazine, and then also started a business at that time. So I have a coaching, run coaching business that I still have and operate. Uh, it's the main way I support myself currently, actually. And um, so I've been doing that for seven years as well. So I have this kind of suite of things that I did to make an entrepreneurial career in running. Uh, a coach, a freelance writer, and running professionally. Now, uh, who would your customers be? Would it be people saying, geez, I want to get into that running thing. Uh, maybe this guy can teach me how to run. Yeah, honestly, it's folks uh, from all different backgrounds, different ability levels. It's folks lo- here locally. I've coached quite a few local runners over the years, uh, including uh, Kelly Professor right now. And then it's folks all over the country, though, as well, and sometimes all over the world. So it's mainly when I have local clients, we do meet in person sometimes and talk or go over, uh, you know, running forum things. But mostly it's email and phone based. And then an online platform I developed to kind of schedule training. We use a GPS uh, platform, Strava, to uh you know, track their and monitor their training. We have regular conversations. So it's uh, really that structuring their training, providing feedback, making sure that we're doing the right things to move them forward. It tends to be a lot of people who are pretty competitive because if you're going to pay for a running coach, you probably are pretty serious about it. And do you tell them, here's what you eat on the day of competition? 
Yeah, uh, really, it covers anything. So, I mean, in, in ultra running, ultra marathon running in particular, you do have to eat while you're running as well uh, to fuel for the for the race. So, we have long conversations about yeah, shoes and gear and nutrition and supplemental exercises to make sure you're staying healthy and not you know messing up your knees. So. All, you know, everything that has to do with running. Yes, I've been doing this sport for, you know, 25 years almost, I guess 23. Really, anything's on the table in the context of running. I just happened to have watched an episode of Adam Ruins Everything uh, on television last night, and he posited that there was a study of runners who finished a specific Boston marathon, and a great percentage of them, more than half, were overhydrated at the end of the race. Some people actually gained weight during the race. What do you know about that? Yeah, it's called hyponatremia, and it's a big risk. And it's something, yeah, we do talk about with, with my clients and in, in general in the um, running uh, running circles. It's become become a higher, you know, people are becoming more aware of that issue because people have actually died. You can die from hyponatremia. You can't yeah. really you can't really die in the context of a race from dehydration, but you can die from hyponatremia. You're essentially wow. diluting your blood. Uh, so yeah, the 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 uh, message of hydrate hydrate uh, for many years in in like sports drink industry and and that sort of thing was probably overstated, and now you need to be careful not to overdo it. Uh, the general wisdom is drink to thirst. Don't like stick to a schedule where you think you right. need to drink more. So, as a coach, as an instructor, it's more than just hey, put one foot in front of the other. There is a lot of science involved here. Yeah, of course. And in fact, a lot of the writing I did in the running industry was was researching the latest in sports science and translating that for everyday runners. Uh, you know, speaking of the term science, uh, I want to give a quote. Uh, this is from your website, your campaign website. You want to prioritize science-based and evidence-backed decision-making in city government. Yes, I think uh, it's essential that we are looking at the social science, the research, the evidence from other communities that are facing similar challenges to we are. I think uh, in my experience dealing with city council over the years, too often we kind of succumb to this Bloomington exceptionalism and insularity where we don't uh, look at what the science is saying and what the, uh, you know, what's working in other communities. Uh, Bloomington is special. Bloomington is unique, of course, but um, we still can learn from others that are dealing with the same challenges we are. So I think it's really important to make sure that the policies we are pursuing are not just what we think is the best based on our interpretation, but actually are driven, in, at least in part, by you know experts, the evidence, and, and the research out there. So I'd like to see more of that. I think we also have a group at IU called the Concerned Scientists of IU. They're advocating for similar things at all levels of government. Oftentimes, the focus is on federal government or state government, but I think it's just as important at the local level. You're hoping to graduate from SPIA uh, this year. Yes, December uh, this year, I'll finish with two master's degrees, uh, master's degrees, one in master, uh, master's of environmental science, and then a master's of public affairs. Well, if I win the city council race, of course, I'll be then serving uh, the city of Bloomington on the council. Uh, I have mentioned that I still have this coaching business that I've had for seven years, so I can support myself in that way, and mm -hmm. that would be my initial inkling. But um, I would like to get engaged in the energy and climate change policy world in some way, so I could see working for a nonprofit. Uh, organization as well, uh, or maybe some other organization uh, while on council. Though, this begs an interesting question of the challenges of being on council and devoting adequate time to do the job well. You know, we pay council members, I think, $15,000 a year. It's kind of a part-time thing. Most council members are employed full-time. You have um, to have a day job. Yeah, exactly. You can't can't support you. Um, Yet, you're on call 24 hours a day, essentially. Right. And I think, you know, it probably takes 
if you want to do it well, do your due diligence, follow up on questions, get back to constituents, be a really good public servant and moving us forward uh, and, and be work proactively and collaboratively. I think it probably takes 15, 20 hours a week, maybe more. There are probably times when it takes 30 hours a week. It's a big ask um, to do that. And I wouldn't, I understand that and I wouldn't be running if I wasn't going to prioritize that. So for me, we'll see where else, you know, maybe part-time work for a nonprofit or my own business can fill in the gaps. But my professional focus, if I win the race, will absolutely be on serving this community on city council. La, 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 la. We've run out of time, so join us Monday for Big Talk Extra during the 5 p.m. Daily Local News for more of this conversation. Matt Flaherty, a lawyer, a student. He's running for Bloomington City Council, an at-large seat. Thanks for being on Big Talk. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 